Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 26. We continue in our series in the Psalms. I think I mentioned before, we're looking to stop at the end of the first book of the Psalms. So we got a few to go. We come to David once more. Psalm 26. It's a psalm that may feel a little bit weird for you. Maybe we can uh, figure out why that feels a little bit weird this evening. And hopefully untangle why it might be a little bit weird. We can keep our eyes on the prize. The prize of God himself and his vindication. Let me open up here, beginning in verse 1, these words of David and these words of our Lord. They write, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray that his blessing would attend the preaching of it. Father, we pray that you would be with the word preached. That your spirit as you have promised, would use it, would use it in the hearts and minds of we who are gathered here and those who uh, listen, that you would convict and comfort, that you would conform us all to the image of Jesus Christ, the one who is fully vindicated, and that you would show us our future vindication before the throne of grace, when you come in glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our great judge, our great defender, our great savior, and our great friend. Amen. Maybe you caught the weird part of this. Maybe you caught the the strangeness of this psalm, the weirdness of these words. David's, well, he's talking at God. He's commanding God in a sense. He's ordering God around. He's saying, prove me, test me, judge me, vindicate me. Well, maybe not those heart, maybe not that harshly, but he, he begins here. If, if, if you're looking for an outline, he begins with a request. He started off the first, first verse. He says, look there, vindicate me, O Lord. For I've walked in my integrity. I've trusted in you. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. He says, uh, prove me. 
you might say it like this. Uh, David is saying, put me in clear terrain. Put me on the straight and level because I've been on the straight and narrow. He's saying, show, show everybody else that I'm in the right. Show them and show me. Make it clear to anybody who looks at me that I'm yours. Clearly, you, you read through it. And he's around people who doubt that. He's around people who say, you're not actually a Christian. You're not actually that kind of person. He's around the men of falsehood. He's around the evildoers. He's around the wicked. He's around the sinners. He mentions them over and over and over again. And he says, look, I go to work and they all, they all, they all make fun of me. They call me a prude. I got, I, I'm around these people and they all attack me. I talk to my family and since it's Christmas time, you may be doing that. And they all think I'm weird. They all think I am, I'm abnormal. They don't like me to raise the subject of Jesus. But I'm not trying to be offensive with them. I just, it just comes out. I'm not trying to be irritating. These may be your thoughts. They're David's thoughts because they're David's situation. So he makes this request. Now, part of the rate, part of the weirdness of this is that he's saying, I have had integrity, um, what the older translations call wholeheartedness, what the NIV calls a blameless life. The NIV may be the hardest to get, and I prefer integrity perhaps, but the basic idea is that David is claiming, I'm complete, I'm wholehearted. And that sits not great with us. That's hard for us to understand because as good Presbyterians, as good Protestants, we know, but David, you've sinned before. I can name a few. David, you've sinned a little bit. It's right here in this book. So is David kind of just ignoring the bad things he did? No, he's saying, he is saying, not, I'm perfect. He's not concocting some perfection. He's not saying I'm sinless. He's not claiming to be without fault. He is claiming to be without apostasy. Or to put it differently, he's not saying he's perfect. He's saying he's overall consistent and that when shown sin, his response, you think of Nathan, Nathan comes to him. David cries out. He confesses. He repents. He's not saying he's perfect. He's saying he has a general Christian and godly disposition and integrity. That's why David says, look, show, show, God, show others that you approve of me. Enemies may critique me. Fake friends may condemn me. People may berate me. You get that as a Christian, don't you? But where does David go? Does David go to those people and say, no, you're wrong. Let me give you the reasons why. Now, David's response when people complain about him, when folks critique him, when people mock him, is to go to God. He appeals beyond them to the Lord for a true and real verdict. That's the path. That's the safe way. That's the free. That's actually the freeing way. You see it with Paul. By the way, you see it with Paul in the New Testament. 
in 1 Corinthians. Paul had the same issue with the guys at Corinth. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for example. They were evaluating Paul's ministry and they were saying, Paul, you have not been very impressive. I think everybody says Paul was very short, you know. Some folks say Paul was bow-legged. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't think it really matters, but he wasn't that impressive. He didn't have the externals. And yet Paul says, I don't put any stock in your assessments, not because critique is wrong. No, but because fallacious critique is wrong. Constant carping and complaining is wrong. That's why Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. I appeal to the Lord. It is the Lord. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. It may be that you need to grasp this if you're a Christian. Some of God's servants need to grasp this. Not that you're above criticism. No, 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 no. That's not the point. But there are some Christians who get battered with consistent carping, usually on frivolous matters. And it can be disheartening. It can be discouraging. It can be distressing. But Paul and David recognize the way of safety and the way of freedom is to take it to Jesus Christ, to take it to your Lord, to take it to him. And in fact, Christ probably will be kinder with you than you might be with yourself, than others might be with you. That's why Paul does not even look to himself for evaluation. So David has this request, but that's the, only the first verse. The, the majority of the psalm is taken up in, in David's kind of reasoning. This is verse 2 to verse 10. The, most of the psalm and most of our time tonight, we spend on the reasons Paul gives. Request, reasons. He gives a few reasons. Why should you approve of me, God? Why should you accept me, God? What is my integrity? But first, verse 2 and verse 3, he says... I'm consistent. I'm consistent. Look at verse 2. He says, test my heart, test my mind. If you look at your footnote, at least in the ESV, it's my kidneys and my heart. So the notion the kidneys were seen as kind of the, the, the reasoning uh, faculty in the, for the Hebrew. Don't, 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 don't ask me why. I have no idea. Um, the point is that David is saying there's something internal. I'm internally consistent. It's below the visibility line. My heart is aiming at you. And other people don't see it, but you see it. You can test it, God. Other people cannot test your heart. I can't see into your heart. Your parents can't see into your heart. Your kids can't see into your heart. But God can this is the deep internal. It's, the, it's the, the depth of the iceberg beneath the surface. And David claims it's anchored on the Lord. And yet, in verse 3, he says there's that invisible. And then he says verse 3, there is a visible thing. There is something that people can see. What can Now, this is striking here. What can people see? This is a, this is a very critical verse. Two things. Your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. It's very important to get the connection that David is saying here. Many of us jump to the last statement. 
How do you prove somebody's a Christian? Are they walking like a Christian? I walk in your faithfulness. I'm walking the Christian walk. But notice what David says. He does not say, I'm walking in my faithfulness. You will never understand so much of the Bible if you put my instead of your right there. And so many of us do that. So many of us put, God, prove that I'm a good Christian because I'm walking well. I'm faithful. I'm doing right. But David does not say, I have been walking all my Christian life. I've been a good Christian boy. I've been a good Christian girl. I've been faithful. I've done everything right. He does not say that. The external evidence that David points to is not his own work. It's very important to grasp this. But he points instead to the fact that I have been focused like a laser. I have been focused like our cat is focused on the food. Focused like a laser on the love of God. On the faithfulness of God. His point is that God's grace has directed his life. God's grace has directed his life. God's faithfulness has been what has kept David ticking and talking. David implies that if he has remained a faithful Christian, it's not because he's a faithful Christian, but because God's a faithful God. And you will totally misinterpret this entire psalm and implicitly the whole Bible if you don't get that. You see, David's not saying here, I have merited your just vindication because I'm a good person. He's saying, the only reason I merit anything, the only reason you can vindicate me, the only reason I can be a good Christian is because you're a good God. And where does he look? He looks to God. He keeps on looking to God. And he says, people can see that in my life. People can see that my heart is aiming at you in my life. They can't see my heart, but they can see that I'm looking to your grace. That when I sin, I go back to your cross. I go back and go back and go back to you. They can't see my motives. They can't see my heart. They can see what I do when I am faithless. I look to your steadfast love and not my heart. That's freedom. That's going to be freeing for you when you're in the middle of constant critique, complaining, just a hard week. But secondly, he says me else. First consistency. First reason he has consistency. Second reason, verse 4 and verse 5. He has company. Rather, he doesn't have company. I don't sit with men of falsehood. I don't consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. He mentions worthless men. That's men of falsehood. Hypocrites, evildoers, the wicked. He doesn't sit with them. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that you can never have a sandwich with somebody who's not a Christian? That if you take a chair 
and your behind gets on the bottom of the chair, you're actually sitting with them, that you're failing here. No. That's a literalistic reading of what this means. What is David saying? In other words, he's saying, when I'm around people who are false, when I'm around people who hate you, when I'm around evildoers, when I'm around them, people who just laugh about Jesus, I don't listen to their counsel. I don't crack jokes with them. I don't like it when they attack you. He's not saying, let's be very clear with this, he's not saying you can't be around non-Christians, sinners. He rather actually is calling for something very difficult and very challenging. Many of us want to close ourselves off from those people, the bad people, whoever they are in your life, the worthless people. We want to close ourselves off from them. And yet, if we think of Jesus Christ, what did he do? He was a friend to sinners. He ate and he drank with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He came near to sinful men and he remained the separate, sinless Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the common argument against that, the common objection I always get is, I'm not Jesus. You're right. You're not Jesus. But you are a Christian. You are a little Jesus. You are equipped with the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying it's an easy thing here, but what David is saying is <clears throat> he stays remote and aloof from the evil of men of falsehood, evildoers, the wicked. And yet he is able to sit down with them and have a meal. He's able to be near them Imitating his Savior. We know that because this verb sit needs to be understood by what the first psalm says. Remember the first psalm? Psalm 1 is the, is the basic psalm that kind of guides us to understand the rest of the psalms. If you recall in Psalm 1, if there's a famous refrain where the blessed man is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You may know that walking and standing and sitting is not simply a literal walking or standing or sitting. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. And the contrast of that is not standing or sitting. The contrast is delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. You know this. The point is that sitting is not simply sitting. But sitting with the wicked means you believe like they believe. You think their advice is the best advice on earth. You uh, are happy to abandon Jesus when they say, let's go abandon Jesus, when they invite you to do so. The point is, friends, that this does not mean that you can't eat a sandwich with sinners. It does mean you shouldn't be listening and following their counsel. Doesn't mean that you can't show hospitality as the scriptures command. Because you're a Christian. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God. And if your delight is in his word, if David's delight is, 
you can thread the needle. You can thread the needle like Christ. Not perfectly, not always, of course. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. But like Christ, you can sit down with sinners without becoming a sinner. You can eat and drink without following in their ways. How do you do that successfully? It's a very hard thing to do. How do you do that at all successfully? You can't be in their assemblies. So if you're not in their assemblies, where are you? You're in the assembly of the firstborn. You're with the people of God. And so David is able to say, I don't consort with them. I hate, I hate it when they deliberately oppose my God. That's the other thing you have to do. Do you hate it? Do you hate it when people continually attack your Jesus Christ? There's a cost to pay. Part of being a Christian of integrity means that you hate the assembly of evildoers. Third, consistency, company. Third, positively, the celebration. If you hate the assembly, what do you love? This is what I just said, but it really proves the point. Verse 8, I love the habitation of your house, the place your glory dwells. What's he saying? I love, I love worshiping you. I love hearing your word. I love, I crave you, oh God. Verse 6, I prepare myself to come to church. I wash my hands in innocence. I, I get ready to come to church. I don't just kind of waltz in and say, oh, it's church time. Verse 7, he says, I declare, I proclaim thanksgiving, I tell all your wondrous deeds. He uses his mouth to talk about God and not just about politics or sports or the economy or the clothes people are wearing or the food they're eating or the movies that are on, the books they've read. It's not just about any of those things he he says, I, I use my mouth to talk about you. I proclaim thanksgiving. And then verse 8. It's not just that I prepare for you. It's not just that I talk about you. I actually love you too. My heart's there. My affections are there. I love the place where your glory dwells. I suppose if you were to translate verse 8 into our language, could you say with David, I love Sundays. I love the Lord's Day. I get to begin the day in morning worship. I get to close it with evening worship tonight. That's a little taste of Psalm 26 in your mouth. And that's what's going to help you to be the one who keeps your eye on the prize of God's steadfast love. That's, the, that's what's going to help you have that consistency on the outside and the inside. That's what's going to help you in a world of, of evil, of, of people who, who don't like Jesus. What's going to help you to live in that world? This right here. And yet, finally, he gives a fourth reason. 
He's scared. Maybe that's a bad way to put it. He has a fear. Verse 9 and verse 10. He has a fear. He says, don't sweep my soul away with sinners. Literally, don't gather me up with sinners. Don't sweep my life away with those who are bloodthirsty. People who love bribes. People who have evil schemes. His concern is really in this main verb in verse 9. Don't sweep. Don't gather me up. In other words, David does not want to go to hell. He does not want to share the destiny of scheming, bribing, murdering sinners. I think for a lot of us, we don't talk about hell too much. We don't want to think about it. We think it's kind of a, a, a bad argument to care about people's eternal destiny. It's a little icky sometimes. But Jesus says it's actually a very good thing. It's a very healthy thing to have those kind of fears. You think of Luke 12, verse 4 and verse 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and can't do anything else. I'll tell you who to fear. I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into hell. And in case you didn't get it the first time, Jesus repeats it. Yes, fear him. And so what's the fourth thing that David has that you and I need to cultivate? It's an unpopular thing. It's a fear. There is a godly fear. You know, in, in June 1914, the, that, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was scheduled to attend some army maneuvers in Bosnia, in the mountains. And he decided to pay a ceremonial visit to Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital. And he wanted to be really nice to them. So he said, look, um, normally we have a lot of soldiers when the, when the uh, imperial archdukes come through, we have a lot of security guards. We don't need those. I trust these people. They're nice. And that's why when his motorcade was traveling uh, back from City Hall, a native Bosnian, Gavrilo, Gavrilo Princip, stepped forward and fired two pistol shots into the archduke and his wife. And the First World War was begun. What if Franz Ferdinand had a little fear? A little fear. He had a little proper fear, a little healthy fear. Maybe I should have some bodyguards. That might be a good start. Well, it, it probably wouldn't have canceled the First World War, but it might have delayed it. That's an earthly example. It's an earthly example. What we have here with David is a heavenly example of fear. See the four reasons, the four reasons David has. That's his reasons. My consistency internally, the company, the company, my celebration, my love, and my fear. I fear the end. That's why, Lord, you should look at my life and say, I'm right. I'm right. But let's one last thing very briefly here. He says, okay, so now what? Now what are we going to do? I have this, this issue in the past. I have these people that are with me in the present, and they're attacking me. But what's going to happen next? Look at verse 11. He makes a resolution. He has a request. He has reasons. Now he makes thirdly and finally a resolution. He comes back to the idea in verse 11 of integrity. That's where he started off. 
I have, verse 1, I have walked. But now look at verse 11. There's a change here at the very end. The verb tense is different. It was in the past in verse 1. Now in verse 11, I shall walk. I shall walk in my integrity. You might say, I'm going to keep on keeping on as a Christian. I have walked, and I'm going to keep on doing it. So here's the great application point for your evening and for your week as a Christian. Here it is. It's really exciting. Keep it up. Keep on. Keep on keeping on. Keep on walking in God's redemption. That's what he says in verse 11. You'll notice again, again, David does not say, I shall walk in my integrity because I've been amazing and I'll keep on being a great person. He does not say that. He says, I shall walk in my integrity. Keep on redeeming me. Keep on showing me grace. That's really the only way I can do this. And so that's the application for you as a Christian. Do you want to keep on being a Christian? Keep on looking to God's grace. That's why it's really appropriate we come to the table this evening. You know, there was once a, a, a Christian in the early church. The first couple of centuries, he was planting a field. He was a farmer. He was planting a field. And some really excited super Christian came by. Some really zealous Christian brother came up to him. And he did what, what sometimes we, we do if, if you talk to non-Christian. He said, if you knew Christ would return the next hour, what would you do different? If you knew he was coming back, brother, how would you live your life? And the, the guy looked at his field. He looked at the seeds he had in his hand. And he said, I'd probably just finish putting these out. I'm finished planting the seeds. Maybe you need to realize that. Maybe the goodness of keeping on, keeping on is simply the, the point that you need to know. The Lord's not calling you to some higher life, some heroic effort. He wants you to walk in your integrity. He wants you to keep walking as a Christian. He wants you to keep looking to his redemptive grace. He wants you, verse 12, to in the great assembly, bless the Lord. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. That's what he wants for us. And to help us do that, he, he, he brings us to this table. He brings us to the table of the Lord.